When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. If you would like to get a bonus episode of The Nuance Life every month, you can go to our Patreon page for $5 a month. You'll get a video bonus episode. This month, we are going to talk about how we approach sending our kids back to school. And I imagine, as our conversations tend to do, that will wander into all kinds of unrelated subjects. We hope you'll join us on Patreon.com at The Nuanced Life. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports our work. We're going to kick off this week's show with commemorations, as we always do. So our first piece of commemoration is from our beloved friend of the pod, Bren, who was at the FileMaker conference. And if you're wondering what FileMaker is, it's um, a workplace innovation platform, and it allows citizen developers to easily create custom apps to solve their business education nonprofit workflow problems without having to know how to code, which I think is pretty cool. So anyway, so at this conference, he had a group of women that started the Women of FileMaker program. They started the program as a way to attract more women to the development platform by offering mentoring and eventually scholarship opportunities to new ambitious female developers. This year, the amazing group won a FileMaker Excellence Award for FileMaker Community Outstanding Contributions. I wanted to see if you'd give them a shout out on the show as an opportunity to help attract listeners to the program and platform. And the women who organize this program do such a good job and truly earned their award. So let us add to the applause. And that's um, awesome for them. I think that's really cool. That's definitely an area that needs more um, recognition for women and developers. So good job, ladies of the Women FileMaker program. We also want to give a shout out to Jessie. We met her at a listener meetup in Washington, D.C. And when we met her, literally that day, Jessie had day. learned that she had been laid off from her job. Along very with quite intense. a few other people. It was very intense. We really felt for her. And she sent us a note to say that since she met us, she is working at a better job and could not be happier. And she said, I feel the survival of your first layoff or job change is another commemoration that is often overlooked. And 100%. That happens to so many people in life. In the moment, it feels like the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I have unfortunately been on the end of delivering that news many times. And I know how awful it is for both people involved to go through that conversation. Much worse to be on the end of feeling like you don't have any control there. And once you get through it, most people who I've talked to have said, you know, you just learn that you're so much more than your current gig. Right. Mm-hmm. And that your life can be so much fuller than allowing that moment to have all this control over it. So congratulations on your new job, Jesse, and on getting through that period better and stronger for it. Amen. So we got 
Additional feedback from a lot of listeners over some of our topics um, on last week and the week before. Katie emailed us um, after we talked about our conversation with Allie Worthington. She said, I learned from Brian McLaren that I use when I run into situations like that one. If I'm talking to a friend who expresses a view that I deeply disagree with, I take a breath, try to really listen to what they're saying, and then after they're done, follow up with, wow, I see that so differently. It sounds simple, but it allows me to gently acknowledge my discomfort without saying, you are wrong. It also acknowledges that my view, too, is an opinion colored by my vantage point in life. I think we often live such siloed lives in the U.S. that we end up talking about religion, politics, or other topics like all our views are self-evident and shared by everyone in our relationship circle. So acknowledging difference is an important starting point to change the conversation. Sometimes the person I'm talking to follows up with a question asking me to explain more, and sometimes we just leave it at that. But I found it to be a useful line in many uncomfortable conversations. It reminds me of Beth, yours. I'm sorry. I just don't see the truth in that. I think that's both. I think that's true. Those are both really great ways to handle it. They're great ways. And it is also good to just say, like, I love I, I see that so differently because it kind of acknowledges this can be valid and just incomplete. Mm-hmm. I'm circling yep. around that all the time now. What you said is not wrong. There's just more to it. Let's talk about the more. Yep, absolutely. We heard from Aditi who shared a tweet with us that said, do people with anxiety realize how emotionally and mentally exhausting they can be for the people around them? And Aditi said, this guy is getting flamed in his mentions and as someone who's made other people deal with their anxiety, I can understand why. But I think his concern is valid and that many people feel the same way. I hope we as a society can have a productive conversation on how to handle this in a way that respects the health of everyone involved. Yeah, I think that's really hard because I do think you have to acknowledge like caregiving, especially caregiving for the mentally ill is very complicated and very spiritually and psychologically and emotionally taxing. And I mean, did this dude do it in the best way? Is Twitter the best platform to have this conversation? Probably not. But I think there is some truth if you scratch the surface there to what he's trying to get at. You know, I think in really healthy relationships, being able to name something that's going on is a big deal. And a way to ease a lot of discomfort just by naming what's happening. So I have found, for example, it's really helpful for me, for Chad to say, you're getting defensive. Because Mm -hmm. I am very often when I feel conflict surfacing (laughs) between us, right? And to just be able to say, you're getting defensive. That's what's happening. And then I can say, oh, that's right. That's what's happening. It, It lets both of us just breathe a little bit. And I wonder if that could could be helpful when you have a really close friendship with someone who has a lot of anxiety for both of you to be able to just name that what what you're going through right now is part of your anxiety. And and we don't have to get wrapped up in anything other than that, right? This is mm-hmm. part of it. I'm here to support you through it. There's a limit to what I can do because this is part of your anxiety. Yeah. Absolutely. Then we heard from Gina about our Age of Fear episode. We heard a lot from a lot of y'all. It was very supportive. I, w- I really appreciated it. Two things she said that really resonated with me. Sarah's comment that we are parenting based on fear, not on actual risk. And Beth's comment that the way to build resiliency in kids is not to protect them from challenging scary things. Outside Magazine's September issue has a cover story on rewilding the American child. And although it's not up on their website yet, it tapped into many facets of this conversation, including the historical cultural practice of putting children through experiences that taught them adult life skills. Importantly, it focused on how it's much more dangerous to children's well-being to keep them indoors in front of screens than it is to let them roam and engage with the natural world. 
world. I'm a mom to a three-year-old and my spouse and I are almost at the end of the foster certification process. We have hardcore embraced the rewilding movement for our daughter. We live in the Colorado Rockies on three acres, where even at three, my daughter goes outside alone to climb boulders, feed her chickens, and dig for worms. She goes to a forest preschool where the focus is exploring outdoors, imaginative play, and learning to take risks. She helps with tasks like building fires when we go camping and chopping vegetables with (gasps) a real knife for dinner. And the risk calculus, letting her take these risks, almost always wins. And I have to silence my inner cautious voice that silently screams, be careful. She is always so much more capable than I would have ever imagined. Luckily, we are surrounded by a community that has similar values. I've thought a lot about this method of parenting may have to change when we have a foster child with the state always looking over our shoulder and what risk means to kids who have been traumatized. Lastly, I took best comments for resiliency in children to heart as I've recently had to repeatedly defend our decision to foster to people concerned about the impact on our biological daughter. I do worry about inflicting trauma on her when children enter and then leave our home or when children from hard places have behaviors that affected her. But I tell my friends, family, and myself that she is resilient and my job as a parent is not to make life as easy as possible for her. I truly hope that being exposed to hard things from a young age, as long as she has a secure attachment and safe place in in her nuclear family, teaches her empathy, flexibility, and resiliency. Thank you for your contribution to this conversation and giving everyone lots to think about. That's a really good response. I've thought about that myself and heard that from a lot of people. And that is a really good response to that, that the resiliency issue with fostering with biological children in the house. It is. And thank you, Gina, for being a foster parent. We need lots Amen. more of those. And that is a hard road. And you're right. I think you can only create better people by exposing them to difficult things if you are having a conversation about it and talking through it and doing it from that secure place. And if you're in a family that has those skills, that's phenomenal. I always think about my friend Kim when we were, when our oldest were like four or five. And my mom always said growing up, you have till three to call their bluff. Like you have, you know, till they're about three years old to like, for, to call their bluff and be like, you don't get everything you want. <laughs> and my friend Kim was saying like, you know, I do it because I feel like the world is going to tell them that one way or the other. The world is going to say like, I don't care if you get what you want at all. And you're not going to get what you want. And they're going to be so much more mean about it than I will be. You know, like I'm their mother. When I tell them, you're not going to, this is not going to get, you're not going to get what you want. This isn't going to work out. Some things are hard. Like I can do it in such a more kind and loving and sort of ease them into it way than the world is going to do. And I think that's so true. And I think that building resiliency within a safe space, within a, a supported nuclear family is such a better way to be introduced to as sort of a, an experiment in building grit and resiliency than just being thrown out into the world as an adult after everyone rearranging your environment to, to best suit your desires your whole entire childhood. And I think that it's just important to talk through all of that. Jane mm-hmm. spent the night with a friend of hers. She has this darling friend in our neighborhood It's a wonderful kid, wonderful family. I love how close they are. So she spent the night with her. She comes home in the worst mood. And when we finally get her talking about why she is such a grouch, it wasn't even that she had stayed up too late because they went to bed at a reasonable time. It was because she wanted to stay and play longer. And the parents had said, it's time for you to go home. And what I realized as we were talking about that is she experienced that as rejection, right? Mm. And so it was good to be able to talk about, you know, Chad said, and I think this is important for her to hear, their entire day isn't focused on you. 
They have Mm -hmm. other things to do. There are other kids in their house besides your friend, and there are other things going on. So it's not all about you. And we know these people. I am sure that they were incredibly kind in this. Like, it wasn't that she got an ugly message, but she's young and sensitive. She has a lot of me in her, right? Mm -hmm. And so she probably felt, I mean, what she communicated to us really is that it hurt her feelings that she was told she had to go home. And so we talked about that. Like, there are going to be lots of moments when your feelings are hurt, and that's not what was intended, you're making this about something that it wasn't about. So your feelings can still be hurt, but let's try to step outside of that and recognize that that's the tiniest slice of what this really is. Mm-hmm. And that you can choose now to see that and get on with your day. Or you can choose to sit here all day and have your feelings be hurt. These are the choices that you have. So I think that, you know, that's a far cry from introducing the trauma of foster children going in and out of the home. But I think it's the same type of skills that you have to bring as a parent. It's not that you put your kids out in the wild and good luck to them. That's how we can evolve as parents, right? Yeah. We used to do that and we inflicted a lot of trauma in the process because we didn't have the skills to process it with them. Now we're trying to process everything with them and not let them be hurt by anything. And what we Mm -hmm. need is the combination Go into the big, scary world and let's discuss. Well, and I think so, you know, so much of my adulthood has been learning the lesson that my emotions are relevant, but they are not reality and I should not be driven by them. And it took me way too long to learn that, to learn that like, just because I feel like somebody's being mean to me and that they don't love me does not in fact mean that they do not love me. Like, and what I really, really try to convey to my kids which you cannot do if you are rearranging the world to their every emotion, because children are such emotional beings. If you're responding every time they're sad or angry with, Oh my God, let me fix it. That that's sending them the message that your emotions and how you feel about a situation are, is the most important information. Yes. And that is exhausting for one thing and not a really great way to move through the world. And so what, you know, I think that, like with Jane and with other things, it's just saying over and over again, like, hey, I know you feel like that. And le- and it's so hard in the same moment to validate and say, it, it sucks to feel sad and to feel rejected and not want to, f- and not to, to validate their feelings while at the same time saying, let's look at the other input. Cause my mom was really good at that. Like always being like, think about the other person. But I also needed to hear like, yeah, I know you're sad. It's okay to be sad. There's nothing wrong with feeling sad. Let's see what else is going on, though, with conjunction with feeling sad. You know what I mean? Not to just be driven just by the emotional response. You don't have to feed being sad. You can be Mm -hmm. sad, but you don't have to be sadder than sad because you're adding all this other stuff to it. You're writing another story that's not going on here. Right, right. Next up, we are going to talk about something. Whenever Sarah sends me a message that begins, I've had an epiphany. I know that it's important that we devote a show to that. So that's what we're <laughs> going to do next up. Sarah's had an epiphany. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Tell the people what you recognized this weekend, Sarah. 
Okay, so I'd already been thinking a little bit about this with regards to politicians because I have this new rule that if you have not changed a diaper in your life, I don't think you should be president or senator or congressman or like city commissioner, anything really. You need to be able to change a diaper is what I'm saying because I think that is reflective of just a, a perspective, a a sense of connection into other human beings and the importance of caregiving. So I'd already kind of been thinking about this, but then I had a conversation with a friend about a husband in our community who was not participating at all in the caregiving of his own children, or at least not participating to the level I find appropriate. And I just started thinking, man, I'm applying this rule everywhere. If you don't change a diaper, if you don't, care for your own children, if you don't care for your aging parents, if you don't, um, if you haven't, you know, been there for an ill family member or for a spouse or a partner, then you don't get my business either. And here's why. Because as we've been doing all this research about 9-11 and looking through the mistakes of like sort of governments and businesses, like I was having the same conversation with somebody about Theranos, the the crazy uh, blood company. Remember that one? And I was thinking about this book I read called March of Folly and how so much of what happens in these really terrible situations is people lose all perspective. They get in groupthink, they fall to their own confirmation bias, and they think there's too much at stake for me to be wrong. So I have to be right, and I'm going to follow my rightness right down into this pit. That's what happens. And I think that when you have the presence of caregiving and connection to other human beings in that very biological, visceral, emotional way, you just always have perspective. Like you always have the perspective of life is bigger than this. I can be wrong. Um, Sometimes we have to take a moment and just wipe somebody's butt and remember that we're not that special and we're all, we're a part of this group trying to survive and thrive together and I am not the the end-all, be-all, king of the world, everything I say is important situation. And I just kind of like, it just fit together for me. Like, that's what caregiving is not important just to sort of as a shortcut. It's it's important not only in identity or name only, but because it does, it offers this sort of perspective. If you've never in your life had another human being dependent on you in a very basic level, then it's just too easy to fall prey to your own ego. Like that's some really good ego work. It's just caregiving for other people. And ego is where we always go wrong, whether in stocks and corporations, government, falling to our own ego, believing that we can't be wrong is always the the risk. And I just feel like caregiving is excellent insurance against that. This was my epiphany. So in summary, if you do not change a diaper, you do not get my vote or my business. Thank you for joining us for this episode. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a really, I think that's all really good. And I I do think we're making progress. We've talked a lot lately about capitalism, and I don't want to derail us too much on capitalism. I do think we're making progress, though, on changing what constitutes capital mm-hmm. and appreciating organizations that value their workers, that make some kind of social contribution. 
um, that employ second chance workers. That's a conversation I was having with Sarah Shotland when she was on our show. So I think we're making some progress, but I think you're right that another thing we really need to be looking for, and this can be, this can come across in policy, but not completely. Like you have organizations with really excellent caregiving leave policies, for example, where you still have a lot of people in very powerful positions who don't quite get it. Mm-hmm. who are enacting those policies because they know it makes the organization look good, Yep. who know that it's part of attracting the best talent now, just kind of a reality of working in our <clears> new <throat> world. Big law, sorry. But there is a really important component missing, and that is the practical experience mm-hmm. of having taken care of other people. I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, for, so forgive me, but when I was um, a practicing lawyer – I think I was in my fifth year, maybe, I got the opportunity to argue an appeal in front of the Sixth Circuit Bankruptcy Appellate Court. It was a really big deal for me, especially at that moment in my career. Flew to Memphis, Tennessee, go into the argument, which is in like a really dramatic kind of courtroom within a law school. And so it looked like law and order, right? There are three judges in their robes sitting up higher than the floor where I'm standing. And there's the lectern in front of me with the little box with the light on it to tell me how much time I have. And I'm seven months pregnant when I do this. And I'm standing there doing the argument. And I felt the baby kick me hard for the first time when I was in the middle of my argument. Oh, my gosh. This is when I was pregnant with Jane. So it's my first pregnancy. And it was such a grounding thing to happen because it was like the universe saying, hey, there's more than all this. So take a breath and just go with it. Mm -hmm. There's more than all this. There's so much more. Actually, all of this is kind of made up, right? Like it's important, but it's also made up. What's not made up is that there's a human being growing in your body right now. Word. And I think that there's something to that throughout our lives, just keeping that connection to what is real and what is not changeable if we agree on a new set of things that matter. And I've had a lot of moments sitting in like really contentious or obnoxious meetings and just thinking about like, right, but yesterday Jane was throwing up. And mm-hmm. so this is all fine, but I don't know. We could, we could all choose to just walk out of this room or tell this person to shut it or go work somewhere else. And the world would keep spinning. That's right. Well, because here's what I think the, the narrative, and admittedly even in my own head has been, I think about particularly like sort of workaholics is, oh, yes, you know, it's definitely, it's not socially acceptable anymore to be like Don Draper and act like kids are just accessories. Like we all want to at least appear as if we value our families and our children. But when it comes down to it, everybody wants their accountant or their lawyer or their wealth manager to be a workaholic, right? You really want your stuff to be the center of their life. Like, even if we like, you kind of want it to look nice, but if I need you, then you better be a workaholic. I want my guy to be a workaholic or my girl. And what I'm saying is like, no, you don't. That is not good for you either. It's not just lip service to his kids. And yeah, you want his family to be to have this, their emotional needs met. It's that it does not serve your interest for someone to be 
a workaholic and for the stakes to be so high because they've built everything on. This is what happens, right? When you give up everything and you're a workaholic, like you lose perspective. Like I better be right about everything or what have I missed everything my child's ever done or what have I sacrificed my marriage on the altar for if it's not that I'm so good at this and it's so important. And when you lose that perspective and when you think I'm so good at this and it's so important, that means it's very hard to be wrong. It's very hard to say, I don't know, I screwed this up, and I'm wrong. And that is a risk for everyone, including the people you are serving. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, I think we all take, give lip to, service to it, but sort of secretly we think, yeah, but I want my guy to really be given it all, right? Well, no, you don't. Because if they do, the stakes are so high, they can't admit they're wrong. And people who are taking care of your money or your real estate or your law or your body whatever, if they can't admit they're wrong, you're in trouble. You're in danger. That's a risky situation to be in as a human being. And that's what I really wish we could internalize is not just the sort of, oh, yeah, we all value family. But the lie, like, listen, Don Draper's clients were getting screwed six ways to Sunday because he could he didn't live a full and complete life. Yeah, he had some great ideas. And sometimes he really screwed it up because he couldn't say, wait, this one's wrong or we're falling this down a path or you know what I mean? Like he just didn't have any perspective. That's what I wish we could really like come to Jesus about. Because just at the most basic human level, what quality of surgery do you think you're getting from a doctor who's been on for 24 hours? Word. What quality of brief do you think is being written by a lawyer at midnight? Mm-hmm. These are really difficult things to ask of ourselves. And it absolutely translates into our work. I, I realize my entire career in one form or another has been advice giving. It was advice giving about the law, and now it's advice giving about business practices and just living in general. And when I set up my coaching business, I decided I don't want to instantly respond to people because you don't give your best advice when you instantly respond to people. You Mm -hmm. need to think about it a little bit. And so most of my clients send me Voxer messages. I listen to them several times. I take a walk. You know, I marinate on it. And then when I feel like I have good advice to give back, I give it. And we've built in that delay because we understand and they understand, too. And that's what it requires. To your point, Sarah, about you really want your person, it requires us as consumers to say, no, I don't want that. I don't want you instantly responding to me. Please take your time and think about it and come back to me. Please go away with my transaction and spend mm-hmm. a week considering the best way to structure this thing, yep. right? That's what we have to give to the people who are in these professions that are just about instant responsiveness and constant work now. We need to give them some space and kind of demand as consumers a little room around all of this. But it's not just if they're working all the time. I mean, do you think you're going to have a good surgeon if they've just decided to file from do- divorce from their spouse or your law- lawyer's giving you advice if they're racked by guilt because they just missed their kid's school performance or whatever, or their or your accountant's doing a great job, but their parents are halfway across the world suffering from dementia. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you can't, that's right. If you can't allow space for people to be a human being. Like it doesn't just go away. We see that what they do is either channel it into addiction, which a lot of these high stress professions are racked by, mental health problems, like that's not serving anybody, including the clients. Like, so that's, and I think this is true of politics too. Politicians who think they have too much to lose and the stakes are too high to screw anything up. That's how you get Chappaquiddick. Anybody who's seen that movie, like, or the thing that happened in real life, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like that's is, that's when the stakes are too high and I can't screw up. That's where we go wrong. That is where we go so wrong. I had just sent you a message uh, last week about someone that we're interacting with 
who had sent some weird emails. And then I finally come to discover that this person is very fresh off a very obviously painful divorce. Mm-hmm. And your response was, this person probably isn't ready to come, to come back to work yet. Yep. And I thought, what a healthy perspective. Yep. To just understand that there are times when we behave bizarrely in context totally unrelated to whatever pain we're dealing with. But it's mm-hmm. because we can't put our pain in a container. It's going to seep out everywhere else. Yep. And in a good way. Changing a diaper also seeps out everywhere else. Mm-hmm. In a healthy way, these experiences that we have that keep us connected to what is very real and unchangeable and important, I think so positively affects how we can advise one another or make decisions about what stocks you need to be investing in or talk to you about whether this this is a litigation matter worth pursuing. Yeah. Well, because, too, the problem is we want the container to be the same for everybody. I mean, you know this in HR. Well, we need a policy for when someone can come back after the death of a parent. Okay, well, here's the problem. Some people need to come back to work to grieve properly and to Mm -hmm. get some perspective and to move forward. Some people's container is going to be like 10 days. And some people's container is going to be like six months. So how are we supposed to make one container for the breadth of humanity and how they grieve or experience divorce or adoption or birth or death? Like, it's just, that's the other thing. We want us all to be the same and apply some policy that's going to work for everybody instead of being like, well, human beings are different. (laughs) Well, but you know what perspective you need to understand how different human beings are. That's caregiving. Yeah. That's where you learn that this child responds totally differently than that child. Or oh, Lord in heaven, do they? Or the treatment that my doctor tried for my aging mother was ineffective and now they have to try something else because they don't know how she'll respond. Or my friend who has anxiety sometimes is comforted by this and sometimes not at all. You don't have to be a parent or even a full-time caregiver or anything approximating full-time caregiving to benefit from taking seriously your opportunities to help other people around you. Absolutely. Because it's just that it's the... I think the perspective that's so valuable about that is this we're in it together and not I have to I have to fix it. Right. We're in it together. And I even as hard as I might want to fix it, it's not always going to work. And I need to acknowledge that. And that's a perspective you should want in somebody who has some sort of um, responsibility over the things in your life. You know what the other aspect of it is? And I hope I can articulate this. I think it's the rawness of it. Mm. It's the experience of just being like sweating from trying to help someone else or from your own physical issue or the fact that it smells horrible around your child and you still have to clean up all this stuff. Like there's just something so tangible and real about having to take care of another person that connects you with your own body in a new way. Right. And, and it takes us out of this world that is like so perfectly air conditioned and my chair has been molded to my body in exactly the right way. Like if you think about all the controls that we put around, especially professional work, the rawness of actual human experience is a very important contrast to that. I think that and it, it links you to your own vulnerability and not to become a broken record and your ability to see that you are vulnerable, that you are, you know, 
just a human being who can make mistakes, who misses things, who screws things up. And I just think that's so important in leadership. It's everything in leadership. I think the reason that we don't have very much real leadership right now is because everybody is looking for um, a human math problem. I just mm-hmm. read this really amazing post from 2017 that I've put, I've set up to go out in our Pantsy Politics email this week. It's about um, an Eastern perspective on Western capitalism. And it's a guy from China who ends up in the UK in um, at Cambridge, I think, for school, graduates at the top of his class, comes to Goldman Sachs to work, and then gets into an MBA program at Stanford. And he's writing about just what all of this looks like to him, being someone from China. And he comments that... He was really confused in his MBA program by all of the obsession with emotion. And he talks about one professor who was very into company mottos. And this guy shared that the sort of unofficial motto at Goldman Sachs is be long-term greedy. And the professor was horrified by that, right? The professor's reaction is, no, it needs to be something really inspiring that gets people going. And this guy's like, why doesn't that get you going? Like, we're all very honest about we're here to make money. And so that's that's our goal. And and he has all these moments where he just doesn't understand why everybody's looking for something a little bigger. He talks about participating in a class where the professor would constantly say to him, it looked like that really touched you. And he never felt anything. And so he bought a heart rate monitor to see if his heart rate actually changed Uh in these moments when his professor was trying to call out emotion in him, and it didn't. And so he ends by saying, in a communist society, it is all like a math problem. If you work very hard, you will be successful. And what I've learned about American business is that it's a combination of education and working hard and also a whole lot of luck and a ton of being able to read the emotions of the people around you. And as I concluded that article, I thought, yeah, I want that. I want it to be like that. I want you to have to read the people around you and feel their emotions. I don't want our our leadership structure to be a math problem ever. But I think that we have so many people in leadership positions who want it to be a math problem. Even people on the human resources side, maybe especially people on the human resources side who just want it to be a math problem that they can solve with a policy. And that's where we've gone very far astray. Agreed. I think that leads very nicely into our bit of inspiration for the week. We always end the nuanced life by sharing something that we find inspiring. And I found this post, it's several years old now, but it's called Let Us Take Care of Each Other by Christine Organ. And we'll share the link in the show notes. She writes, early this week, my youngest son came down with strep throat. Like most illnesses, it came at a rather inopportune time. We were out of town, a meeting was scheduled for that afternoon, and I had about a million other work obligations and chores that I should have been getting done. But when my son awoke with a fever and complained of a sore throat on Monday morning, the schedule and the to-do list were thrown out the window. Adjustments were made. Plans were canceled. Projects fell further down the to-do list. Instead of sticking to the plan and accomplishing what I had set out to do that day, I spent the day schlepping my kid to urgent care in the pharmacy, giving extra hugs, doling out medicine, and drying tears. Add a flat tire to the mix, and the day just continued to unravel. Throughout the day, one word kept coming to mind, unproductive. 
Mm-hmm. I, like many others in our technology-driven, multitasking, busy is a badge of honor society, tend to measure the value of my day through the yardstick of productivity. How much did I accomplish during the day? How many items were crossed off the to-do list? How many work obligations were met? How many projects moved forward? We all have our own goals and dreams, not to mention our obligations and responsibilities. So we make our plans, write our lists, schedule our days, and we should. Goals give us direction, helping us work to make things better. Schedules keep us on track, giving us a tool with which to allocate our time. Plans give our day and life purpose, creating a path to get from where we are to where we want to be. But could it be that there is something more tucked away amongst all those plans and schedules and to-do lists? Could there be some quieter, calmer purpose hidden within all the busyness of our days and our lives? Is purpose and achievement really meant to be measured by all that we accomplish in a day and a lifetime? Or could our purpose actually be that we just take care of each other? Could our divine calling be something as humble yet challenging as taking care of each other in any way and whatever way we know how? Does accomplishment lie in our own personal successes or does it lie in our ability to build someone else up so they can achieve theirs? Does efficiency lie in a busy calendar scheduled to the minute, or does it lie in deeper relationships, a calmer mind, and knowing that we have made someone else's day just a little bit better? Is productivity measured in the number of completed projects and tasks accomplished, or can it be measured in back rubs and uplifted spirits? I know myself well enough to know that I will always rely on my list and my plans. I will always strive to be busy and be doing more, and I will forever have projects, goals, and agendas. I will always strive to be productive. As individuals and as religious communities, productivity is not only worthwhile and valuable, it is also essential. In order to grow and learn, to do better and be better, to build bridges and promote social justice, We need to continually strive to move forward, accomplish the impossible, and aspire for the unattainable. But at some point, the how becomes more important than the what. As the ever-wise Maya Angelou has said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So at some point, while we're busy making our plans and working toward our goals, as a beloved community and as persons of faith, I think we need to ask ourselves, How are we taking care of each other? Because that, my friends, is really the measuring stick that we should be using. Finally, back at home on Monday night when I tucked my sick but on-the-mend son into bed, drawing up the soft covers and smoothing his tussled hair, I knew that by all objective measures, my day had been highly unproductive. Yet I also knew deep down that I had accomplished more in that day than anything that I could have put on my to-do list. Still later that night, my husband came home from his own busy, hectic, and stressful day, filled with his own important meetings, difficult clients, and an ever-growing to-do list. He spends work days being productive in the objective sense and providing for the family in the traditional sense. Nonetheless, when he walked in the door that night and hugged me long and hard— when he said, I'm sorry you had a rough day, and then listened attentively and sympathetically. When he smoothed my hair before I fell asleep, I knew in my heart that those minutes were by far the most productive and purposeful things that he possibly could have accomplished in even the busiest of days. So here is an item that we should all put on our to-do list today and every day. Take care of each other. It's that simple. It's that hard. It's that important. So take care of each other and keep it nuanced, y'all.
Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener-supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash thenuancelife. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.